I'm Katie. And I'm Michael. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. I'm going to go with probably more than a little mad. That seems about right. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. So, Mike, we're going to do Jeanette's now. The Jeanette's episode. The Jeanette sequence. (laughs) All right, mine is, uh, uh, her name's Jeanette Rankin. She's from Montana. She's super cool. So, she's born in 1880 near Missoula, Montana, which... Montana in the 1800s. Not a lot there. Pretty remote. Not yeah. a lot there. Uh, that's sort of um the Montana's area anatomy. It's kind of on the western side. It's uh near the Rockies. Yeah. It's I, definitely remote. I mean, it's, even today, it's still even today, it's remote. super remote. I remember driving um, through it two summers ago and was like, yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing. Oh, here's the town. Yeah. yeah. Oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. She's the daughter of a school teacher. Her mom, Olive. And her dad is John, and he's a rancher. So she's growing up that Montana life. Um, she's the eldest of six children with five girls and one boy. Oh, boy. The little dream boy. Guess what his name is? It's so good. Wellington. Wellington. I find it's, you just know where he's headed, right? He is headed. Um, she's the eldest, and Western vibe right now is like, we don't care who you are, just get the work done. Mm-hmm. There's a whole legacy of being some of the most progressive in terms of women's rights at this time. So there's just not enough people out there to start being patriarchal. It's like, we're going to die. Somebody's got to pick the potatoes. Okay. I don't care who you are. Just do it. Mm -hmm. So she's the eldest. So she gets the first run of doing all the chores. Right. Um, So she does do the typical stuff of like cleaning, sewing, caring for the children, but there's other stories of her like helping outdoors and, uh, Farm chores and stuff. One of which, which I found cool, was fixing farm machinery. Fixing, like, tractors and stuff like that? I don't know what machinery you'd have in 1880, but probably mm-hmm. some kind of tools and things. Okay. And then building a wooden sidewalk to a building nearby so that her dad could rent it out to people. I mean, that's... Getting stuff done. That's busy. That's a busy gal. So, um, she gets, she gets a little stir-crazy in Montana. She wants to get out and see things so she gets to uh she graduates high school she goes to the university of montana and gets a degree in biology um she tries working various jobs various uh, appropriate jobs for a woman at the time so dressmaking uh designs furniture (laughs) and teaches okay but she's like "Mm, no i need to do a little bit more there's a entry in her journal that says it makes no difference where just so you go, go, go. Remember at the first opportunity, go. So she feels so a need like, to explore the world. Mm-hmm. So she ends up going to uh, New York um, and attending what is now Columbia University School of Social Work. But uh, then it was kind of in its early days and it was called like philanthropy or something. And she gets, she finds a love of social work. She kind of finds her cool. calling in, in helping her fellow man go figure mm-hmm. And uh, then she goes to Washington State and attends UW, but actually start there. It's uh, it's like 1910-ish, and she's like, mm, suffrage seems cool and in line with everything <laughs> I need in my life. So I think I'm going to be a suffragist or a suffragette. I don't care. She's into suffrage. 
Um, so she joins the National American Women's Suffrage Association, or NASA. NASA. Long name. NASA. Very yeah, I know it's early days of acronyms. And she becomes a lobbyist for them. And while she's there, the state of Washington approves in their state constitution to allow women the right to vote in 1910. By 1910, it's the fifth state to do so. And they're mostly Western states, They're right? mostly Western states. I think Wyoming might be the first. Okay. I don't have that on me right now, but... Yeah, it's, it's mostly West. The The West is leading the suffrage mm-hmm. train. It's like um, women, women need to do stuff. So we there's no reason vote. for them not to vote. They participate equally in mm-hmm. society. We couldn't have a West if women weren't involved. Yeah, that's you so interesting because like my, my image of the West, at least nowadays politically, is like very conservative. Like, oh, I like would. Family values. I would. Thing. I would agree with that. But I find them more purple than anything else. Oh, interesting. I find them. I find the West with my Eastern viewpoints mm-hmm. i find the west very uh case by case mm-hmm. uh practically minded in a lot of ways i find montana interesting currently yeah in that that's what i was thinking of. democratic senator democratic senator republican senator republican congressman so democratic mixed. state legislature i think so i think so always vote for a republican president it's very mixed bag yeah. it's very mixed and it's very based on the person i think like john tester out there is very he's a montana democrat it's different mm-hmm. it's a different view of the party yeah and i think that goes back to this like i think it's deep with who went out there the first time mm-hmm. you go out to the west because you want to call your own shots you know what i mean totally you don't want to be predictable <laughs> i find and i think that's pretty thorough in the mm-hmm. kind of what we think of as western states yeah that's my take on it so She's like, cool, I see what it can do in Washington. I'm going to go back home and get this going. So she goes back to Montana, and she's trying to get suffrage passed in Montana. And she's on corner stops. There's an anecdote I heard that she had an orange, uh, what do you call it, box? No. Crate. Crate? Orange box? Orange crate? That she would turn over and stand up on and, like, yell at people on the corner to be so like, literally like, votes for women on her on box. Soapbox. She's literally on a soapbox, but it was orange box. <laughs> Um, and she, yeah, she just canvasses the state and she, uh, succeeds in a way. She and many others by 1914, um, Montana passes an amendment granting women unrestricted voting rights. So that's three Good years. Yeah. I mean, that's four years pretty... after she really starts going in suffrage. So that's really fast. she's got her calling in a way. So now she's like, cool, we need, I mean, state by state is great, but I want to live everywhere. And so everywhere should let me vote because I, I don't know where I'll be. So she goes and she tries to um, help suffrage by getting into the national platform. So mm-hmm. Montana has a House seat open in 1916. And she's like, cool, I'm going to run for Congress. And her brother Wellington is like, I'm into that. You're a great sister. Let's do it. And he has since returned from Harvard. So he has a kind of Eastern upbringing. He's got kind of a connection with the Republicans of Montana, Mm -hmm. which is a a big party out there. And this is pre-1960s Republicans. So this is different than what you think of Republicans is now. I just want to be clear on that. They are the progressive ones. They They are the movers and shakers. They're the party of Lincoln. They're the... They're still actually the party of Lincoln. They're actually aligned with Lincoln. Yeah. So... She uh, goes all over the state. She she moves. She hustles. Which traveling Montana, even nowadays, where do you a... find people? It's hard. Okay, yeah. there's not a lot of 
cultural, like, oh, there's not a lot of, like, dense city centers yet. That you got to go, like, farm to farm. You have to go to schoolhouses. You have to go to, yeah, you're just everywhere. She gets elected. Spoiler. She gets elected. Yay! Um, by over 7,500 votes. I don't know what the population of Montana is at this point, but it's not a lot. So that's probably a big margin. <laughs> and so she becomes the first female member of Congress before women are allowed to vote nationally. Damn. So go, girl. Look Don't wait for her. anybody. Don't wait for anybody. Just do it. So she gets in 1916. What's happening in the world, Michael? Not a whole lot. Just like World War One. Just looming? Or is it there. started yet? It's already it's started. It's happening. But we haven't joined yet. Yeah. It's not great. America is sort of like not interested in going to war uh, on a popular level. Like it's a... it's a, We're still really isolationist. We're really not into killing anybody or having our children go... I think we're fine with killing people, but just, like, not in other people's On our terms, yeah. We don't have a dog in that fight. And it's sort of, like, it's it's just a lot to ask. So, um, not a fan. Not a fan of World War I. Um, Germany, however, decides to declare war on all Atlantic shipping. Any ships that are in the Atlantic are fair game for them. And America decides to take that as a, a declaration of war on them. Because it... We don't want to fight, and now you're forcing our hand is sort of how they viewed it. Because we can't continue. We're trading so much. Yeah. There's so much connection across the Atlantic with America and Europe at this point, which is sort of an argument to go to war. But um, there's so much trade that you're effectively, like, hindering yeah. us economically. And, you know, I think they attack a passenger ship. Yeah, so they sink the Lusitania, Lusitania. which is this big thing. And right. we find out later that, like, it's a passenger ship, but there's also a bunch of, like, munitions and other things. Yeah, I'm not saying like, we were just shipping, shipping like, Britain. I'm not saying we were just shipping whatever we shipped, but. Yeah, it um, wasn't just, like, food. Like, we were sending, We were like, trying to stay out of it, but, like, help the people too. we liked, and yeah. it was awkward. Have you read about the Zimmerman telegram? Yeah. That's, like, my favorite That's, like, the go-to one. That's a Mexico ever. thing? Right? Yeah, Germany basically is like, hey, Mexico, if you declare yes. war on the U.S., we'll yes. let you, like keep all of the stuff they took from you. Yeah, there was a lot of backdoor stuff happening. So Woodrow Wilson goes to Congress to declare war on Germany in April of 1917. She was elected in 1916, so not in there for very long before she has to vote on war. Um, So what happens in that kind of scenario is the president goes to Congress. He goes, I would like you to declare war because I cannot. FYI, president cannot declare war. We Congress kind of lost that one at this point. Congress has to declare war. It's part of the Constitution. So they vote at 3 a.m. on April 6th. They've had a debate. Um, it's a heated... There hasn't been an attack. Well, there's been the Lusitania and stuff, but there's still a lot of kind of feelings about not going. Now there's a little less um, opposed. Mm-hmm. But Rankin is one of 50 representatives and six senators who votes in opposition of war. Oh, interesting. So there is a group... That do, that not a majority by any means, but mm-hmm. a group that don't want to pursue this. Does she say why she doesn't vote? Yeah, she says, uh, "I wish to stand for my country, but I cannot vote for war." Uh, she has many reasons for this. One of which is that she's a raging pacifist, just a, in, raging, a pacifist. raging pacifist. She uh, wants everyone. She doesn't see any benefit in war whatsoever. She finds that pacifism and suffrage are two sides of the same coin. She thinks the most women could do in terms of government is stopping war is how she views it. I'm mm-hmm. not going to say that's true, but that's her take. 
And she said, years later, she said, I felt the first time the first woman had a chance to say no to war, she should say it. So she, she even she has a sense. She of like has a sense of her importance. Of she understands that she's not going to be the last, which I find incredibly moving. That's really. She's nice like, to hear. so I am the first, and this is the first time a woman gets to say anything about war, on a level that can be heard, and like matter, and my vote matters, and I'm going to do what my conscience says and say no, and I find that incredibly moving. Um, so despite being one of a group, she's singled out. <laughs> And they're like, the I'm lady surprised. said no to fighting. Ah, let's hurt her. And uh, even her home state in the um, Helena Independent newspaper said a dagger. she was a dagger in the hands of the German propagandists, a dupe of the Kaiser, a member of the Hun army in the United States, and a crying schoolgirl. So, uh, so nice reasoned, not sexist discourse. No, no. Super valid argument from them. Um, so she's like, whatever, I did what I want. Um, <clears throat> now she's like, okay, I declared no war. Let's get this suffrage situation figured out, please. So in January of 1918, she gets to open the debate on a constitutional amendment granting votes to women. In which she says, how shall we answer their challenge, gentlemen? How shall we explain to them the meaning of democracy if the same Congress that voted to make the war, well, voted for war to make the world safer democracy refuses to give this small measure of democracy to the women of our country. So pretty solid. These argument. boys are out there dying for us to be a free democratic republic and you will not grant half of its citizens a say in how that republic is figured out. So uh, it gets through the House and in the Senate it fails. So it gets reworked a little bit and rethought out and time passes and more people die and Everyone wants a win, and um, when you're killing all the young men of the country, the women become a different focus, is how I interpret it. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. You're killing all of these women's sons, so they're maybe getting a little royally pissed off and would like maybe a say in whether you send their kid to die for no reason. Uh, Sorry, there was a reason. There was a reason. I'm sorry. Um, So it goes again in 1919 and is passed, and three-fourths of the states ratify it and make it the 19th Amendment. To the Constitution, she's only been in there for one term. Suffrage is passed. Now I'm saying she's riding the wave of like common sense, yeah. but at the same time, she's getting stuff done, and I appreciate that in a member of Congress. Yeah, what I'm a not time! Familiar with that? Concept I know it's anymore. a it's a radical concept. Uh, so just to be clear, Jeanette Rankin is the only woman who voted to allow women the right to vote. Oh, boy. When you put it like that. <laughs> She's the only woman that was able to grant votes to women. And I want to thank her for that. And that's a lot of men that did, too. I'm not going to say, you know. But do you think if she wasn't in there, it would be different or restricted? Or maybe? It, yeah, Probably I mean, be different. Because when the, when the United Kingdom first allows women the right to vote, there's a number of conditions on it. Yeah. So there's, like, age restrictions or property yeah. restrictions, I think. And like, yeah. The U.S. is kind of unusual in that. It's like, nope. Unrestricted women. votes to women. Just go for it. And I will say there's still problems with voting at this time. Oh, God, yes. Like, getting into a voting booth is, uh, let alone, like, she's a white woman from Montana. Like, she's not where enforcement needs to happen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's the main thing that she's the most proud of in her entire life. And she cites it as, like, I was the woman 
voted for women to be able to vote. That's a big deal to me. And she would tout that for the rest of her life. Um, so her district gets kind of restructured while she's in her first term. And she finds herself a Republican with a Democratic district. And she's like, mm, I'm not going to win. Uh, so she thinks she'll try and run for Senate. It doesn't end up working out. So she ends up uh so she's Leaving. like a one-term congressperson. One-term congressperson <laughs> declares no war on Germany or in World War One and gets suffrage passed. No big deal. And uh, so she's like, cool, I'm going to go live in Georgia for a little while because it's cold in Montana. That's my guess. Pretty I don't know fair. why Georgia. I think maybe just it's very to live different. somewhere different, get a little warm. Um, she continues to make speeches and uh, is still a raging pacifist. She still talks about it all the time. She... Especially with, like, this um, fallout from World War One of people realizing that war is awful. You usually find out afterwards about how we shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, Be nice if we could remember that one. And she sort of, like, she sort of, like, keeps that momentum going. He's like, yes, we should. We should not go to war. War is terrible. Can you hear the dog barking? Oh, he stopped. Okay, great. Um... She found... She founds a peace society. She uh, lobbies for... Uh, banning child labor she wants to have an amendment doing so she supports the shepherd towner act that might not be written right uh sorry autocorrect uh she's she supports the first federal welfare program which was created specifically for women and children she she lobbies for that it was passed in 1921 and repealed eight years later because we can't have anything good um because <laughs> why are we going to need that in the 1930s no, not at all. Women and children 30s. are going to be great in the 1930s. Um, so then she's like, what else can I do with my life? And you know what? I'm going to go to India. You know who's in India right now? Mahatma Gandhi. He seems like a chill pacifist that I could learn from. So she goes and she studies pacifism with his teachings. And she's like, That's super casual. It. Yeah. She has a very huge tenacity to seek out. She's like, seek out her life. I'm about this whole pacifism thing. Who can I find to teach me about pacifism? The pacifist. The most famous pacifist. Of the 20th century, yeah. Okay. Um, so you just see this constant thread of anti-war, pro-women, pro-children. Her mm-hmm. life in social work has led her up to just changing the world. I can I get love behind her. those things. So the 30s happen. She's, she's rocking and rolling. She's making speeches. 1940 looms. Who's elected in 1939? Oh, yeah. That jerk Hitler. And she's not ignorant to that. The world is aware that something is bubbling in a way that they don't understand how, but they know something's happening. And anybody that says, like, it came out of nowhere is full of shit and not accurate. So she sees that and she's like, nope, no, we're not doing this again. We're not doing this total destruction, losing a generation of young people to this idiocy. So she's like, cool, I'm 60. Let's do Congress again. And she goes back to Montana. (laughs) And she's like, hey, remember me? I'm the first woman elected. Way to go, Montana. Let's do that shit again. And uh, it works. remember how great I was? And I don't want to go to war. And she's not subtle about that. And they're like, yeah, we liked you, Jeanette. You're cool. Wellington's like a big deal here. We're into him. He's like the attorney general or something. So, uh... She's endorsed by other progressives around the country. She wins 54% of the vote. It's about 25 years since she was did Congress, so no big deal. Also, she's a 60-year-old woman. We don't hear a lot from them very often in history. So she gets in, 
Uh, she's in January 1941. December 7th, 1941 happens. So she's in there not even a year. And old president comes on up to Congress for a joint session, makes a big speech, day which will live in infamy. We must declare war on the nation of Japan. And prior to Pearl Harbor, many Americans felt the same as they did about World War One, or they felt the same as Jeanette did, which is just like, it was chaos. It killed so many people. I don't, I'm not into it. And then we got attacked. We got attacked mm-hmm. vilely. And it, it, it motivated, it motivated the country in a different way. And it turned everybody's opinion in a significant way. Um, I'm sensing a butt here. So December 8th, there's a vote to declare war on Japan. He's just given a speech. They debate. She tries to speak in the debate. The speaker refuses to call on her. Uh, she gets declared out of order. They will not let her speak. I'm just going to cite it. Nevertheless, she persisted. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's asked by her fellow progressives to vote for war. It's clear it's going to be yeah. a for war. There's just no way you can't in this group. Um, or if you're not going to vote, Jeanette, can you please abstain? And she's like, okay, I hear you. No. Um, so there's, I believe these numbers are correct, but I could be wrong. There's 471 members of Congress who can vote. There are 10 women in Congress at the time. Total. So, which makes 460 men. So 471 members of Congress. 470 of them vote for war. One person does not. We had to take a guess who that person was. Miss Rankin. She votes against the war. She's the only member of Congress to vote against the war. A roll call vote is taken, which means they say, Jeanette Reagan of Montana, nay. And she's the only one. She's immediately hissed and booed in the chamber. She states, I'm not sure when she says this, if it's in the moment or later as an anecdote, but she's always got a zinger. Mm -hmm. And hers is really great. And I appreciate it. And I agree. As a woman, I can't go to war and I refuse to send anyone else. And I think that is so perfect. She just thought, like, it's, uh, it's so perfect because it keeps to her guns of, like, why women should be treated equally. It's like, if you gave me an equal seat at the table, I would join you. You ch- you don't let me in. Why would I help you? Like, you, you got to let me have an equal piece for me to have a say in the thing you want me to. <sighs> I love her. Um, I wrote, I love her in my notes <laughs> right there. I think it's incredibly brave to be the only one and to stick to your principles like that and she's 60 and just, just doesn't like, give i love it so allegedly an angry mob followed her out of the capitol following the vote and she had to hide in a phone booth to avoid them harassing her and she had to get a police escort back to her office so super positive mm-hmm. and her brother wellington was super chill and he wired her montana is 100 percent against you so way to go well i think it kind of ruined some stuff for him too yeah by extension like he he was a pretty big deal in the state so he's got the crazy sister that did the (laughs) anti-american but she's not a real american you can't just be like hey that she humiliated our state there's a lot of stuff but in private she said she told friends that i have nothing left but my integrity and she also had to have known that this is such an unpopular decision and yes, she has principle and yes, she has integrity. But like once you kind of shoot yourself in the foot with your A constituents and B colleagues, you're not going to get much else done. So she's not really effective in the rest of her time mm-hmm. as a congresswoman this term. 
which I, I don't know how she felt about it. It had to have been frustrating because she got so much done the previous time, but yeah. press don't talk to her. Colleagues don't seek her out. She's also not the only one. There's 10 others at the, this particular Congress, so. Yeah, but yeah. I, it does raise that question, right? But it's she like, did the thing she probably felt yeah. she had to do. And, like, what's the point of having principles if you're not going to stand for them at some point? Yeah, like, and it's not like she hid the fact that she was a pacifist. No, that seems like that was she a pretty clearly, clear She's thing. like, I just got back from Mahatma Gandhi's. You know what? Screw it. Let's go kill Japanese people. Like, she's just not going to roll over like that. Yeah. What an idea in a politician. I know. Um, I'm kind of shook by that. <laughs> Montana. Uh, breeds good people. Um, okay. So she uh, she works her, her odd job life again. She um, It's the 40s, 50s. She kind of ranches. She lectures. She gives speeches. Late 60s happen. Civil rights becomes a big deal. Right on the tail end of that, the feminist wave starts to occur. Mm-hmm. And... Um, she sort of becomes this new hero for this new generation of pacifists and protesters and peace-loving counterculture that don't see the point in killing a bunch of young men for no reason. Imagine that. And um, uh, feminists really harken back to her as being the first and being so good in her principles and, like, strong. And so... Uh, Jeanette Rankin Brigade is organized as an anti-war march in 1968. It's the largest march by women since the suffrage parade of 1913. They wow. march to the Capitol building and she leads them and she hands a peace petition to the House Speaker on the state, uh, on, in the Capitol building, saying, let's not be in Vietnam. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but Vietnam goes on for much, much longer Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's 1972, Vietnam's raging, Nixon's terrible, but no one wants to talk about it at this time. He's about to get impeached. Mm. He's about to. Mm. Um, also, my favorite fact about Nixon, just for a sidebar, is that this can be a blooper. My favorite fact about him is, did you know that he had a committee for the re-election of the president? Committee to re-elect. Wait, committee to re-elect the president? The, an- the acronym was CREEP. Yeah. The acronym like, was CREEP. How do you know? Nobody got that? that through marketing. <laughs> and then it's like, and then they get arrested for stealing, like, in the dead of night, like a bunch of creeps. I can't. He's just, like, so much a monster. Okay. Branding is important. So in 1972, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> so in 1972, she's like, Vietnam sucks. I don't like it. I don't like any of this business going on. I should run for Congress again. I'm 91. <laughs> I'm 91. Who gives a crap? But she's she's getting more ill at this point. She has a lot of ailments, and so that her health makes her not mm-hmm. go forward with it. But, but she like, was kind of like, I'm this. sick of this war business. This is the third time around. I even had to deal with Korea, four if you count that. It's just a nightmare. She's done. But she ends up, unfortunately, she ends up uh, passing away in 1973 at the age of 92. And she leaves her estate uh, to, um, including her home in Georgia, to help mature unemployed women workers. So not only does she want to help women, she wants to help women of a certain age, which I appreciate. Yeah. Like, she she sees that there's a neglect of women after a certain time. And I think that really stuck out to her, being an unmarried woman who lived to 92. Like, she lived a lot of her life after 30. Yeah. <laughs> Most of it, one would say. So maybe we should give them more 
just give them more. Mm-hmm. So they set up the Jeanette Rankin Women's Scholarship Fund, and it awards education scholarships to low-income women 35 and older. Yes. And they've given more than 1.8 million scholarships since 1978. That's to more incredible. than 700 women. There's a statue of her in the Emancipation Hall in the U.S. Capitol building. Um, it was given by the state of Montana in 1985. There's also... This might make me cry. There's a statue of her in the Helena State Capitol, and there's a picture of her on Election Day in 2016, and she's covered in roses, and I voted stickers. Oh, my God. That's beautiful. Yellow roses, which is the... The suffrage. The suffrage kind of icon. And there's also a portrait of her painted by Sharon Sprung, which is in, I believe, it's somewhere in the house. Um, near the visitor and press galleries, but it's a very stoic picture of her. And she's wearing what she wore on her, I believe, her um, swearing in, mm-hmm. which there is documented evidence of what she wore because that's all the reporters talked about was her blue dress and her hat. Because that's what mattered about her being the first woman in Congress was what she was freaking wearing. Um, but she looks great. I'm not going to deny. She looks great. She looks flawless. And, uh, she is very stoically holding a Washington Post newspaper. I'm just looking at the the painter and the Washington Post. They think is like her holding the the newspaper. That's like, look what I did. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm in mm-hmm. this newspaper because I'm a big deal. And she's in like the Hall of Congress and she's alone. It's it's a beautiful portrait. But she's she's phenomenal. Um, just a little. Do you want a little stats about Congress? Yeah, this give is it to great. Me. This is my favorite. In 2017, 105 women were in were out of uh, 535 seats of Congress. Uh, what percentage is that, Michael? 19.6. Technically, uh, the highest it's ever been. Still not half. Still not half. Not even close to half. Not even half. Uh, 21 senators and 84 representatives. So way to go, ladies. Um, 277 women ever have been elected to the House. 40 women have been elected or appointed to the Senate. In the entire history of the Congress of the United States. Appointed or elected? Oh, what do you mean? Oh, well, apparently there's a nice history of your husband dies, so you get his seat. What? I think it harkens back to they are one person. She would vote the same as him. That's absurd. Slash, let's be sensitive. I'm sure they did good work. Oh, no, I'm... Of but I don't think that flip has ever occurred, has it? I don't. A woman dies and her husband takes over? It might now. But there haven't been enough women to really make that a thing. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sure they did great. I'm glad they're there. They up our numbers. But that's what the a hell thing. is that? Why is that a thing? Oh my god! So here's my favorite stat. <laughs> when everybody's just like, it's so great now with twenty percent. Nineteen point six. Since 1789, there have been 12,249 individuals who have served as members of Congress. Two percent have been women. Ever. 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 So when Ruth Bader Ginsburg gets asked how many women is enough on the Supreme Court, she says nine. To which I add nine for about 250 years, and then we can let them back in. Yeah. Then it'll be even. And there should be another 200 years of just black people on the Supreme Court. (laughs) If we get it that long. But just all of them. Just all of them. There's a weird, stupid logic that a white man is a neutral. And it's bananas, and it's caused more harm than we know. Oh, God, yes. So, so t- over, get them all in there. So, for 12,000. 2%. 2%. Whatever that is. 
So that not yeah, a lot, but no, that's yeah, a good two hundred fifty years, give or take. Yeah, and yes, it was the time, and it's the time, and like, don't calm down. Yeah, it's we, just like look how good it is now. And I'm saying I'm not denying that it's not good now. I'm not denying that. I'm clearly of the most privileged generation of women in this country. I'm aware of that. I'm not gonna sit back and let that be fine. Right. Did she? No. She was like, Montana has suffrage. I'm good. I'll live in Montana. No. Bullshit. Everyone. I'm tired of it. No. There's always stuff to do. There's always more to get. Yes. All 535. I would love an all 535 female Congress. That would mean the vice president would have to be female. That would mean a lot of husbands would have to die i think which is unfortunate <laughs> but apparently that's, that's how the, you get that's in the only way it gets in <sighs> oh, sorry that's man. not true a lot of women campaign really hard and i'm really proud of all of you republican or democrat that are in there right now because hot damn yeah it's not a lot no it's not a lot that's it's not a lot and so many of them are the firsts it's gotta be so frustrating you just want to get in there and do your job you don't want to have to be like you're already a representative. You don't need to be a representative of a whole other thing. Like, it's just a nightmare. Hi, please represent your district and also your whole gender. Yes. Thanks. Or your whole race, which I'm sure some men have to deal with too. Or your whole like sexual orientation. It's like, you're going to be the gay senator. And we're going to learn about gays from you. Right. You have to teach us. Like That's such bullshit. I'm sorry. Vote. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've got another Jeanette for us. Do you? I do. Her name is Jeanette Ridlin-Picard. She's the first, not once, but twice. She's the first woman to go into the stratosphere. And she's the first woman ordained as an Episcopal priest. Oh, yeah, So she's covered quite a range of things. Yeah. Um, And in between there, she works at NASA for a little bit. Cool. So just, like, covering a lot of bases for us. Um, But my personal reason why I think she's the coolest is because I'm pretty convinced she is the inspiration for John Luke Picard. Yeah, I was going to say, she <laughs> went to space Trek. and her last name is Picard. Mm-hmm. I see a correlation. Yeah. Now, supposedly, when you talk to the creator of Star Trek, you're like, it's named after these guys. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, no, no, no. Because Jeanette's the one who's doing the cool work. The guys were there. But I'm pretty sure it's actually named after Jeanette. So we'll talk to Patrick Stewart about that. See what his thoughts yeah, are. Yeah, let's get him on the phone. He can be our guest next is season. He's going to speed that up for me? He might be. I'm we'll, just kidding. We'll see what we can do. He um, wishes. Sorry. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> um, so Jeanette is born in Chicago mm-hmm. in January of 1895. Um, she's one of 11 kids, including a twin. She's one of a set of twins. Um, what time? This is the 1890s. Oh, my God. Yeah. So mom is doing oh, mom. doing the work. God bless. Um, her dad is a prominent orthopedic surgeon in Chicago, so they're relatively well off. Um, she attends private schools, um, and then what state is this? Sorry, this is in Chicago, Illinois. Oh, oh, oh. Um, okay. In the keeping in the spirit of like depressing things happening in people's <laughs> childhoods, um, at the age of three, everyone's a Disney movie. <laughs> going. Her twin. Oh um, no. Her, they're playing with like the 1890s version of an easy bake oven basically bad, bad wirings in that <laughs> which is basically just like a smaller version of a, a wood large oven. oven um and they're making some potatoes and her sister's dress catches on fire oh my god she 
gets covered in burns and burns to Why death. are you laughing? Because it's so horrifying, this thought of, like, your twin sister. How old are they? They're three. Oh. And, like, having to, like... Oh, no. Be three? In, be in the room next door as your, like, sister dies. It's awful. There aren't, like, more children around? Like, there's 11 of them. There's 11 of them. Okay. But... Okay, keep going. So this, like, really traumatic childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the only time she ever talks about it. Like, it doesn't ever come up again. Mm. Um, but she manages to, like, graduate high school. And she wants to go off and get an education. Mm. And her mom and her siblings are like, no, you're going to get married. You're going to marry a nice rich guy. And you're going to do that. And she's like... I don't want to. Jen just um, laughing in my face. Sorry. Cause... Hold on. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a bunch of her classmates are going off to women's colleges. And she's like, I think I want to do that too. Mm-hmm. And she looks around and she finds out that her high school diploma will get her into almost any women's college in the country except one. And so she's like, well, great. That's the one I want to go to. Which is one? Um, and that college is Bryn Mawr College, which mm-hmm. is a small women's college outside of Philadelphia. Of which you're familiar? Full disclosure, both my parents work there. Um, <laughs> I learned about Jeanette doing a project uh, last summer for the chemistry department there. Okay. Um, but when asked why she wanted to go to Bryn Mawr, her reply was she wanted to go just so that no one could say I couldn't go there, which is a pretty great like reason. Her. I'm a big fan. Um, and when her father confronted her about it, she was like, he asked, do you really want to go to college? She simply responds, I do. He's like, cool, you're going to go then. Um, but wanting to go and going are two really different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's really tenacious, but she's not necessarily the best student. So she fails the entrance exams twice, which like happens. Fair. And so she goes and spends a year at a school near Bryn Mawr doing extra classes, sort of boning up on the things she needs to learn, mm-hmm. takes the entrance exams a third time, mm-hmm. passes. So she's at Bryn Mawr, uh, class of 1918, so right around the same time as our other Jeanette, Great. is doing some cool stuff in Congress. Mm. Um, Jeanette graduates in 1918 with a degree in like English and philosophy. It's a little unclear because college majors don't really no, exist at different. this point. Yeah. Um, but she then goes to the University of Chicago to do a master's in chemistry. So she's obviously doing some kind of science. Yeah. Um, she gets there, meets a professor named Jean-Felix Picard who is a Belgian-Swiss immigrant. Is he French? Not he even. Is. He's Belgian. Belgian. All right. Um, and he is a um, sort of visiting professor there, her professor, mm. and they end up getting married. Okay. So she gets her master's degree and gets married in 1919, married to her professor, who is significantly older oh, than her. Oh, no. Come um, on. Which I was looking at. Can I have somebody it. I can root for in I one mean, of these stories? You can you know root what I mean? for Jeanette, I know. kind of. But you know what I mean in terms of like... Like age-appropriate marriages? Yeah. yeah. I wonder marriage I can root for is what I'll say. Okay, let's, we'll aim for Because all that. of them are so Yeah, let's see if we can find one. <laughs> we'll find one at some point. <laughs> um, okay. And this is a really common thing at this time, apparently, um, is faculty members will marry their students. And so if you look at the history of these women's colleges, you'll notice all of these faculty members who are married to graduates of the college... Who graduated while they were teaching there so you know problematic yeah super problematic a nice little bit of family history for me is my grandfather um was a professor (laughs) at johns hopkins um in the 30s and 40s um and ends up marrying his graduate student my grandmother um, may or may not have already been married to someone at the point that they met and divorced to marry (laughs) graduate student and grandmother 
So, so it's definitely. Like, I remember having a, a very thing. bizarre thought as a child that everyone in black and white movies was like so much more chaste and like um, rule abiding mm-hmm. in that social construct that we were always taught as kids. Yeah. Like I always felt like when I watched old movies, like it was really like that, like separate beds and like yeah, yeah, no, no. it's all it's all BS. It is. <laughs> they were all so flawed, so yeah. so flawed. Um, so they get married in 1919. Mm. Um, and then move back to Switzerland, where mm-hmm. Jean has a teaching position. Okay. Um, two little sidebars. Sidebar number one, Jean is also a twin. Whoa. His twin brother, Auguste, is a famous balloonist. He's the first person to fly into the stratosphere. Oh, It's okay. like the early 20th century, so like it's being like a high-altitude balloonist is legitimately like a celebrity thing. He's super famous, getting a lot of money from the Belgian government to do these big flights. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that in a second. Auguste. But first, let's talk about... Sexist citizenship laws. Okay. Because this... Are they rampant? So rampant. And I was reading about this and just got so incredibly angry about it. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we can't not talk about this. So here's how this goes. Jeanette marries Jean. He is a foreign citizen. Mm. So she immediately loses her American citizenship the moment she marries him. Well. Because in 1907... Congress passed a law called the Expatriation Act, which is part of this early 20th century movement to, depending on how you want to think about it, regularize our immigration system or make our immigration system more repressive towards the people we didn't want to be in the country. What a new thought. I know, right? Hmm. So between... Wait, America has not been open for other people to come into with like enthusiasm and appreciation and acceptance? I don't buy it. No? Do we just take all their food and are like, thank you for this, and then kick them out again? And decide that that's their only cultural contribution? Not not wrong. Yeah, great. Um, so 1907, 1907, this happens. <sighs> yeah. And then between the passing of the act and 1922 when it's repealed, thousands upon thousands of women lose their citizenship because they marry foreigners. There's some super famous cool. women this happens to, but for the most part, it's just like women who are getting married and then losing their citizenship. Cool. Which is horrendous. But of course, it's this idea that, like, once a woman's married, she's not a person anymore. No. She's just, she's like, the legally person part that her of her husband. husband is. Yeah. Right. Um, and so they basically have no standing as individuals in the U.S. anymore. Why? Um, so complicated. It's, just, it's too hard to keep track of, oh right? God. We'd have um, to, like, double everything. And the, the most exciting part, the Supreme Court, that bastion of rights, upholds numerous challenges. They're pretty terrible, but, like, don't. At this point, they're really terrible. Like, there's a number of women who challenge this law, and the Supreme Court's like, no, women are not individuals. How many men were on that Supreme Court, Michael? Nine. All nine! Woo! Yeah. Uh, For a long time. Luckily, there's another Jeanette floating out there in the world, Jeanette Rankin, we just talked about, um, who gets into Congress and is like, this is bullshit. This is bullshit. Um, And so she starts pushing to change the law. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, it takes a little bit longer. She's out of Congress when it passes. But in 1922... Did you just cite my Rankin in your thing? I did. Get Jeanette, out! Jeanette. Yeah. A little crossover. Look I at the synergy. That. I bet they were like, great name. I'm going to help her. <laughs> mm. um, I like to think so. Yeah. Um, because the act is passed in 1922. In 1926, Jeanette returns to the U.S. Um, but of course, it's not retroactive. So she has to reapply and get naturalized as an American citizen, Sweet. even though she's born in Chicago as an American citizen. Nice. It's absurd. Yeah. So no, anyway. it's stupid. Yeah. Like most laws back then. 
Yeah. They make no sense. So that's no. that's my rant about sexist citizenship laws. Yeah. So now on to the fun part. Did she get her citizenship? She does. So she becomes a citizen in 1926. No big deal. You know, because she... One extra thing to do. It's fine. <laughs> um, so now to the fun part. Mm-hmm. The balloons. Mm. Um, so at this point in the 20th century, there's a huge debate raging in physics about this particular kind of radiation in the atmosphere mm. called cosmic rays. You gotta mm. give physicists this. It's a cool name. Mm. Um, and they're not exactly sure what it is. Mm. And so the way they're trying to figure it out is by doing all of these high altitude ballooning experiments to mm. like send instruments up and take these measurements. Okay. And Gene's brother, August, is one of the first people who does this. Okay. Um, he makes the first manned stratospheric flight in 1932 right. and makes another one in August of that year. How high up are we talking? We're talking like six miles, which is... How high does an airplane go? <laughs> Give us some context. I think an airplane, so an airplane flies around 30,000 feet. Oh, okay. Um, and these Five-ish balloons. Miles. Yeah, so they're a little so bit higher. So you're at the height of like a. But like where a commercial jet flies. Like that's you're pretty intense. Far up. How do you this breathe? This is the 30s. So here, that's the thing. There's all of these technical challenges to solve. Like, first of all, you need a balloon yeah. big enough to carry a capsule mm. with people in it. Yeah. That balloon has to be able to expand hugely because at ground level right. there's less there's more pressure so, so the air the gas expands mm. inside the balloon as you get up that how do you get sometimes how do you get down other important Sorry. questions Am no there's a... no there's all of these things that they're trying to figure out and like the way you figure this stuff out in the 30s is like you try it and if it doesn't work your balloon explodes it catches fire or you die oh my god so there's this whole series of like chill really extreme ballooning ballooning accidents where like the capsule won't pressurize and so they have to like bail out or the balloon fails or it like starts spinning and so they can't get out or they can't figure out how to get it down there's just like all of these like really challenging things to figure out and of course like trial and error is how they're doing a lot Mm. of the figuring yeah um and so in addition to it being this like science thing it's also this kind of like daring risky adventure that you can go on so Mm. the people who are doing it get these reputations as sort of being risk takers. Sweet. And that's what happens to August. He gets this kind of like celebrity around him. Um, and so Gene wants to sort of organize this like grand tour of the U.S. for his brother to like come and talk about what he does and sort of like drum up some business. Mm. Because Gene is, we're going to find out, is like has a complex about being the less successful brother and is cool. like repeatedly like the less successful brother. And he's not the most likable human being in the world. And now so we're talking about his wife, animosity. so I bet he feels great about that. Yeah. <laughs> I bet he's super chill. Um, and so they organize a tour in 1933. And as part of that, there's this big exposition in Chicago going on called the Century of Progress, mm. all about the like technological developments that have been happening. And they're trying to like celebrate science. We're kind of like in the Great Depression. So they're also trying to like draw up some business. Yeah. Um, and as part of that big exposition, they want August to like do a balloon flight. Okay. And they're like, okay, sure. Like you, you pay for it, we'll do it. And so the Picards are organizing this, trying to make it happen. Jeanette, unsurprisingly, ends up doing a lot of the work because she's a lot more personable mm. than her husband. Um, August doesn't speak very good English, so they're sort of, like, facilitating for him. And, of course, she's from Chicago and has all of these connections. And so it's, like, doing a lot of the networking to make it happen. Mm. Unfortunately, they go to do the balloon launch, and it aborts after the first 20 seconds because mm. they're trying to launch this big balloon in what is basically a large sports field in Chicago. Mm. Doesn't go well. They eventually get the launch to go off, but the Navy has to, like, come in and help, and they delay it so it's not part of the exposition. Mm. So the Navy gets the stuff to go. It works. They get some measurements. 
but the kind of the way the deal had been set up is like the Picards get the balloon and the gondola afterwards. And they're like, well, we have this big balloon. We have this gondola. We should do something with it. Mm. And they're like, okay, we're going to go try to fly to the stratosphere. But you're going to notice there's a big difference between like a group of businessmen or the U.S. Navy being like, hey, we're going to go fly to the stratosphere. And these like this couple who's like, we're going to go fly to the stratosphere. Uh, so I have two questions. Okay. What do you got? Layers of atmosphere. So, oh boy. Or is atmosphere all of it? So it's all, yeah, it's all, it's all atmosphere. atmosphere. And then there's like stratus. There's another sphere. Yeah, there's a couple of spheres. 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 The stratosphere is the only one. That Where's I know the about. ozone layer? I think the ozone layer is on It's the one of them, right? I'm going to Google this. Okay, don't worry about it. Sorry. I, no, no, I think that's a good question. We should like establish that. I need that little graph that I had um, in Earth Science or whatever. Yeah, let's see. I'm sure there's a good image on I, Google. Mesosphere? No, that's. That's an epoch, isn't it? Um, <laughs> no, no, you're totally right. So there's the troposphere, which is like really the close ground. to the ground. Yeah. There's the stratosphere, which has the ozone layer in it. It's within the stratosphere. Um, then the mesosphere is above that. And then the thermosphere Whoa. is the outermost layer of the atmosphere. Um, so the stratosphere is from like, I'd say like five-ish miles yeah. up to about 30. So when you're in a jet, you're like flying in the stratosphere. You're like right on the bottom of the stratosphere. You're on the yeah. bottom of it. Yeah, like how thick is it? Uh, the stratosphere is. It looks like it's about twenty-five miles. Whoa. So from like five or six miles up to about thirty miles. Wow. Um, and if you're gonna like being in a that is, I mean, that's like commercial jet is like five inch. I don't know why my concept of our atmosphere is much thinner. I don't. I think it's just like the fact we put people up in space makes yeah. it seem like it's. It is very daunting and a thing that is impressive to me. I could geek out about space for a long time, but I won't right now. But, um, yeah, that just seems way more impressive to me all of a sudden. Yeah. No, it's... Now that I'm older and understand distance better, I think. <laughs> There's something about you get distance once you start driving, in a way. Or yeah. at least I did. If you were going to drive... But 25 miles is significant. Yeah. And it's, like, straight up. Oh, my God. Okay, second question. Okay. Since this is, like, early space travel, yeah. for lack of a better word... Pretty it's much, like yeah. the precursor to NASA. Is um, did they send up things in balloons before they sent up people? A la, poor little animals. So it's this whole. It's actually like I a like big... hope they did for safety, but I hope they didn't because like no one asked for that. No. So it's this big debate about whether manned flight or unmanned flight is better because the problem at the moment is like automating things is still pretty basic. Mm. So you can't like send something up and have it really do anything very repeatedly early on because you don't have the technology to like automate any of your systems yeah so you really kind of have to send a person up if you want to do anything other than like the most basic like send a balloon up take one type of measurement and hope it lands somewhere and what was their original reason for going up to To measure measure cosmic rays and they just knew they existed but they don't know what they did right and they wanted to figure out like what kind of radiation they were where they were coming from sort of a lot of like, really basic, important physics questions, but the kind that you can only answer from the stratosphere. Okay. Um, and so they're kind of like, we have to send people up if we want to actually do any of these measurements. Okay. And also, it's, like, sexier if you're sending people up. So it's, like, well, dangerous. And you get, like, yeah, poster yeah. people. Exactly. Okay. Um, and so the Picards are like, we want to do this. Great name for this job. I, I'm going, yeah. how about that? It has to be. I think so. Right? I think so. Okay. Um, and so they're like, okay. Two problems. How are we going to pay for it? And who's going to fly the balloon? 
because it's not necessarily just like a, you go straight up, you go straight down. Like there's a lot of stuff you have to do to keep from falling in the ocean, crashing when you land, crashing when you take off. Second stupid question. They're in Switzerland. They're now in the U.S. They're oh. back. They're back in the U.S. Where? Um, they're living outside of Philadelphia. Gene is kind of working at the Franklin Institute there. Kind of not. Second question, wouldn't you go to the mountains to go to the stratosphere? See, you'd think that. Like, wouldn't you be in Switzerland? You'd want to be, you'd think you'd want to be higher up. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the other balloon testing that happens in the U.S. happens out west. Yeah. Where it is slightly higher elevation. Yeah. But there's two big problems with that. One, at this point, it's generally in the middle of nowhere. So getting all of your stuff out there is really mm. difficult. Mm-hmm. And two, you don't really want to hit mountains going up. Like, the Midwest is oh. actually a really great place to do it. There's no. Because it's flat. Mm-hmm. You're less likely to, like, crash on the side of a mountain when you land. Which is bad if you're in, like, a round capsule that just keeps rolling. Extreme experiments. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so they're like, okay, yeah. we're going to give this a shot. Yeah. Uh, don't know how to fly a balloon. Don't have the money to pay for it. But we're going to do this. Okay. Um, so a goose got got balloons, right? A mm-hmm. goose balloons. So, they, so they've got the balloon. It's got a company and they've got right the gondola. There. They don't have anything gondola. else. That's what you call the basket? That's what you call the basket. Um, and it's basically like a large aluminum ball like a big hamster ball that you put people and uh things inside and it's pressurized is there a picture there's a picture oh my god thank god there's this really incredible picture of after spoilers they're gonna make the flight um and after they land there's this great picture of like Jeanette like popped out of the gondola like talking to reporters um it's really cool we'll put it in the show notes okay um and so she's like well great I'm going to learn how to fly a balloon. Yeah. No woman's ever been certified as a balloon pilot before. She's like, I'm going to do <laughs> it because <laughs> you're inept and I don't trust you. Apparently, Wait, what? So she's like, she's talking to her husband. She's like, you're not great at things. God, and we're really giving him the business, aren't he's, we? I I'm bet not, he loves this podcast. I'm not his biggest fan. Oh, yeah. He's kind Mullen, of like unpleasant Jean. and bumbling and like not great. Wait, his name is Jean? Jean-Felix Picard. What, isn't it Jean-Luc Picard? Yeah. So it's a pretty direct thing, but yeah. I'm convinced it's, uh, it's actually her, Jeanette, that's just like Jean. masculine. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's debatable. So she says she's going to fly the thing. She's going to fly the thing. She doesn't trust her husband too. Pretty much. I mean, the, the they official. They never ask for directions. The official reason is like he's going to focus on the science, but you take one look at the relationship, like he doesn't trust him. Yeah. And I wouldn't either. With, um, like a sensitive, like crazy. Like, like if you fuck this up, we die. Yeah. Kind of a thing. Yeah, I'm gonna and kill us if anybody kills us. Exactly. I get that. Um, and so she goes out and she finds this guy named Ed Hill, who won the Gordon Bennett Balloon Racing Championship in 1927. What a time! So there's like balloon racing going on. What it's a, a serious thing. Um, and he teaches her how to be a balloon pilot. And in 1934, makes her first flight and is certified as the first female balloon pilot. I'm sorry. She's like, we're gonna go up and. The stratosphere with this balloon. I'm gonna learn how to fly balloons so we can do this. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Yeah, just like casually. this is a theme with you of like women learning completely new skills to accommodate their, their passion. Men. Yeah, yeah. Just, I think it's great. I'm okay. a big fan. Um, uh-huh. So 1934, Jeanette Picard becomes the first woman in the world with a balloon li- pilot's oh. license. What a thing to be known for, right? That's a good little snapple fact. Isn't yeah, it? I like it a lot. Unfortunately, the balloon piloting organization doesn't recognize pilots by gender. They don't see gender, so there's no, like, official <laughs> recognition of that fact. Most progressive um, thing in this podcast. Which is gonna, which is gonna become... The balloon organization issue. doesn't see gender. That's um, a t-shirt, isn't when it? When it comes to, like, recognizing the altitude record that she sets, 
but we'll get to that in a second. Oh. Um, it's it's, it's a, it, good it, and bad, isn't it? It's good and bad, yeah. exactly. Um, and so the next thing they need to figure out is, like, how are we going to pay for this? The flight that the government had done in 1933 cost $50,000. Mm. They're, even if they're going to do it on a shoestring budget, need $10,000. Yeah. Which in, like, modern money Dang, is about 180000 That's a lot, yeah. It's a lot of money. Like, they don't work at a university. No. They don't work at, like, a big corporation. They're not independently wealthy. Like, they don't have the money just, like, lying around to do this. Yeah. So Jeanette does what she does best. She goes networks. She convinces people to give her stuff for free or at a discount. Fundraises. So she's clearly like an affable, she's like intriguing yeah, woman. That very personable. Wanna, mm. Very much like this is the thing we're doing. Great, I'm going to figure out how to make it work. Plays a game. Yeah. Um, my favorite thing is she basically invents Kickstarter in the 30s. <laughs> so she comes up with this plan that they're going to print a bunch of these little pamphlets about the flight. They're going to take it up with them into the stratosphere. Get and in out. return for donating to their thing. You can get a little pamphlet that's marketing space. maven. That's such a good idea. Yeah, it's brilliant. And the the, the the really pressing thing is there's like no data about like how much money they raised. But I just love the idea that she's like, I'm gonna think about this thing that a bunch of tech guys are gonna figure out like 80 years from now, and I'm gonna do it in the 30s, and we're gonna like sell these pamphlets for like 25 dollars because they've got the space. And like that's brilliant. That's so smart. Um, and then she does some other things like she convinces Henry Ford to let them use the airport outside of detroit that he owns Mm. um gives them free housing she gets an all-volunteer ground crew of 300 people to help the balloon launch um and convinces edison's company to donate an anchor system for the gondola and an uh, oxygen company to give them the hydrogen gas they need for the balloon and they'll advertise for them or they'll tell them who i think yes sponsorship my understanding from the picture is i think there's a couple of like the companies have their names painted on the balloon or on the the gondola um and it's also just like really good publicity yeah because it's this thing of like you went to space your shit went to space exactly you Mm -hmm. made that possible i just cursed sorry um it's okay i've done it like three or four times this episode i I said that word earlier but um okay um and so get all this together and they're like great we're gonna make it happen Uh and so on october 23rd 1934 they get set up for the balloon launch um Make sure that, like, all of their scientific equipment is ready to go. Pack a lunch of bananas and milk, uh-huh. apparently. Uh-huh. Um, and this is my favorite thing. They bring one of their son's pet turtles along, whose name is Fleur de Lis. And so it's going to be her, her husband, and the turtle going to space. How do you think that happened? I don't know. I think the kid was like, take Mr. Turtle. I guess so. Fleur. Take Fleur. Take Fleur. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's really they cute. they were like, we want to take something It's probably else. a good story to tell. Yeah. Um... And so they here they got this giant balloon. It's like 40 or 50 feet tall once it's got the gas in it. Wow. This huge gondola. It's maybe like 16 feet in diameter. Room for people in it. All this equipment. They're going to launch. They have to launch at like 6 a.m. Uh-huh. And pretty soon they're at about 10,000 meters. So over six miles into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. They make their measurements. Mm. And as they're going up, they're a little worried because their balloon is spinning and they're rotating. And the last time a balloon had started rotating really quickly was in Russia. It caught fire and exploded, oh, and everybody God. died. Oh, so they're, like, a little worried going up, but everything's fine. Okay. They get the measurements they're looking for. After a couple of hours, they're like, okay, it's time to come down. So they land in Ohio, 300 miles from where they launched. Whoa. Kind of a After a couple landing. hours. After a couple of hours. Wow. Um, and they were really worried they were either going to land in the Great Lakes or in the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. So they're pretty happy to be in Ohio mm. and not dead. Um, 
it's a bit of a rough landing. Like, they kind of crash into some trees. And Jeanette is apparently really broken up about this. In the New York Times story that runs the next day, she's really fixated on the rough landing, how, like, she should have done a better job. Mm. To which I'm like, most of the guys who've done this have messed up and died. Like, burning balls of gas. You're doing just fine, Jeanette. Yeah. Don't be so hard you on yourself. You also got the info. Yeah. Like, you figured this out on your own, and everybody lived. I think you're doing just fine. Um, mm-hmm. And so in making this flight, she sets a well, female altitude record. Is there a fear, too, of, like, the ladies flying the balloon? I think that might be part of it. It's like, gotta be a little Like, some internalized sexism to, like, like now make it's gonna be a thing that the lady can't fly the balloon without hitting a tree. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely, I, yeah, I think that's probably part of it. Um, At least on, her, on herself. A little yeah. Bit. Um, or her husband was like, see, I told you, I'd be fine. Oh, we, would, we wouldn't have hit a pine tree if John was doing it. John. <laughs> I'll just sit over here and be sad. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. It's cool. So she does it, makes it happen. Sets a record. Sets an altitude record, which lasts until 1963 Dang. when the first Soviet female astronaut goes into space. Yeah, I know about her. She's but of great. course, because the aviation organization doesn't see gender... She hasn't set an altitude record because she's a woman and she didn't set like a record above any of the other standing records. How progressive. So she doesn't get anything recognized. Mm. Yeah. So again, like mixed bag with them. Yeah. But so far they've been the most progressive organization we've seen on this podcast. Yeah. So. So then sort of like that happens. Life goes back to normal. Raises some kids. Uh, Jean eventually gets a job at the University of Minnesota. Mm. So they move out there. There's this weird anti-nepotism rule at that university. So, like, because they've hired the husband, they can't hire the wife to work there. So even though she's, like, just as qualified to be working there, he gets the job and she can't. But she goes on to get her PhD there. Oh, um, okay. Does some work organizing during World War II. um, And then Jean passes away in 1963. Okay. Pretty much immediately after, she gets a call from NASA. NASA's like, hey, girl, you went to space kind of back in the day. We're sending people to space right now in the Apollo program. We'd really love you to, like, come work for us. Oh, my God. Um, and she basically does two things for them. Uh, one is a public relations thing. She goes out. She talks to people. She sort of, like, sells the manned space program. Like, why skill. is it important to be sending people to space? Lots of, like, really important public relations work. And the other thing she does is she consults on capsule design because that's a lot of the work mm. she had done is, like, figuring out, like, We've got these people in this enclosed space. How do we clean the CO2 out of the air? Mm-hmm. How do we, like, design the enclosures so they don't rupture? Which turns out to be really important because that's the big problem Apollo 13 has. Yeah. Is their CO2 scrubbers right. don't work, and that's what causes the fire. Right. Um, and so it's something NASA's, like, super focused on. They want to get it right. Um, and so she does a little bit of consulting work So does she precede them. Apollo 13 or she post? Or she's, she's within. She's sort of within. Yeah. Starts working a little bit beforehand um, and I think sort of helps that them. happen? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's so she's working with NASA. Yeah. Spends about six years working for NASA. God, I love NASA. Um, but then she kind of has this this change of heart. She's like, science is cool. I love science. Yeah. But religion. Whoa. Yeah. Right. You said this is the so, beginning. Yeah. Right. So Christ. always she's always been really religious. Mm. Um, there's this great story from her childhood where she's 11. Her mom comes in there talking. She's like, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And without missing a beach. And it's like, I want to be a priest. And her mother apparently runs screaming and crying from the room at hearing this. Chill. Super chill. Chill. Her, Not scarring for your child at all. The way Jeanette talks about it is that's the only time she ever saw her mother run in her entire life. A Catholic! Life. <laughs> <laughs> Papists! Um, and, it, so, and so she's, a, she's an Episcopalian. 
So when she gets That's to college. That's the priest thing being a little dramatic. Yeah. She's raised Episcopalian. Raised Episcopalian. So being a priest would be like. Whoa. Well, so she'd be an Episcopal priest. So she's not converting to Catholicism. Well, your mom freaked out about that. Her mom freaked out because this girl wants to be a priest and only guys can be priests. Oh, it's a gender thing. It's a gender thing. It wasn't thing. even like, That's not, not our thing. It's not a thing. It's a gender thing. <gasps> so it's like. Mom. Yeah. Mom not Come doing great in that moment. Um, got 11 of them. Let them do whatever. You're going to have plenty. You like, think. there's plenty of roots to take. You'd think. Oh, my um, God. And so she gets to Bryn Mawr, <laughs> Screaming Really from active mind. in religious organizations on campus. Writes a paper entitled, Should Women Be Admitted to the Priesthood of the Anglican Church? So 100%. Like, not subtle. Yeah, and that's the answer. It's like, yes. <laughs> yes, they should be. Um, I can't believe I have to write a paper about this. And so this is, like, early 1900s. Then, like... Once Science, again, great marriage, time for women. <laughs> balloons, NASA. Mm. Finally gets around back around to it in the 1970s. She's living in St. Paul. She's volunteering at a black Episcopal church in the city. Um, the pastor's name is Denzel Cardi, and he's kind of encouraging her to think about her religious vocation again. Mm. He's like, you should, you're really good at this. You're like, you seem like you've got a calling for this. Like, you should think about it. Um, and in that same year in 1970, the Episcopal church has decided they're going to let women be ordained as deacons. It was that early? Mm-hmm. 1970? Yeah, the Episcopals are like... They're progressive. No, they've yeah. always been. In, yeah. my, in my lifetime, I, they're always making the news of being ahead of the game. Yeah, and so they, they start pretty early, 70s. Um, and deacons, for those of you who aren't super familiar with like the way church orders work, they're ordained, but they don't have as much like powers as priests. It's also like, like they, not... Well, Catholic... Catholic? Catholic. Catholicism. It's... Deacons are... It's just one step away from, like, the full vocation, right? Yeah. Like, a priest or a nun is, like, the full lifestyle of a church minister, right? So, Anglicans, it's a little more, um, it's a little less strict. Like, you can have family, you can have things. But you're not going, like, full out. Right. And, like, the priest is, like, responsible for the church, whereas the deacon has, like, a specific set of responsibilities within it. Right. Um, Deputy. Deputy. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Um, And there's a lot of writing in the early Christian tradition about how women were deacons. And so mm-hmm. that's sort of what they're looking to when they make this decision. Yeah. Um, spoiler alert for all the Catholics out there, the Catholic Church is looking at this too. Just like, think about cool, that. Cool, so like 50, 40, 50 we'll see years how that later? Goes. Yeah, we're a little bit 1970 they did it? 1970. Catholics um, aren't good at being up to date on things. No, we're not. I'm really bad that's at an, it. An, oh, Michael and I are both Catholics, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so Jeanette's like, cool. I'm going to go do that. So in 1971, she gets ordained as a deacon. Oh, um, uh, I don't know how Michael identifies, but I will say I was raised Catholic. Let me just clarify that. Keep yeah. Going. I would say I identify as Catholic, okay, but great. we can have, that can be a whole separate episode if we want to. Let's let them be curious um, about what that means. Keep going. <laughs> um, and so she's a deacon, but she's like, I think I do actually like want to be a priest. And so even though wow. it's not allowed. And they're called priests. Yeah. Rev- huh. Reverends, um, I think is like the technical term, but yeah, priests. Yeah. And that, that distinction um, very similar to the Catholic Catholic tradition. Well, it's <laughs> hard, right? Catholic. So hard. The Catholics. <laughs> I um, was raised Catholic. Sorry. And so in 1972, uh. she enters a seminary in New York uh, for further theological training. Um, and the way she frames it is like, this is where I wanted to go when I graduated college. And I couldn't. Yeah. So it's like very full circle for her. Oh, yeah. Um, she's like, I'm finally here doing this thing. Think about that. Um, of course, like, she's not necessarily, again, like, the best student. So she has to work really hard to, like, pass all her classes and, like, get... She hasn't, like, been in school in 30-something years. So, like, get back up to speed. Um, but she's she does. At this point, she is um, in her, like, mid-70s. Huh. 
So like going back to school with all these youngsters. These Jeanettes have so much in common. Just like rocking the old age. Yeah. Um, And while she's there, she's meeting with other women who feel called to the priesthood and finding out that there's like a large group of women who are like, no, we we want this. Mm. And so in 1973, the Episcopal Church has its big like general convention and they make a big push to get women ordained as the priesthood. And take one guess what they do. Shut it down. Oh, God. Just like, shut it down. In particular, there's a California bishop who makes this big pronouncement about the maleness of God, which, like, <laughs> goes over super well. What a prick. Obviously. And the bishop, such a del- oh, Like, you know? Oh, did he call you? Oh, okay, great. Oh, he's been calling this guy. We should just all go to him. He's got uh, the one-way ticket. He does. I mean, totally on top of Ugh. it. Super appropriate. What a prick. Uh, but the bishops say that they need more time to study the issue. Because <laughs> obviously... Besides a millennia yeah. of just having women around. Um, but all of that <sighs> being said, that same year, Jeanette's like, well, I'm still going to take the examinations. Like, going to see if I pass the test. And of course she does. So she basically... Everything... She has everything she needs to be to be a priest, except the permission of the bishops to be a priest. Um, but we're going to take one guess about how much she cares about that. Not yeah, don't ask for permission. Bit. Just ask for forgiveness. If you have anything to be yeah. forgiven for, which is nothing. So just don't <laughs> ask for permission. Uh, and that's exactly what they do. So yeah. in um, 1974, a group of women decide that they're going to get ordained, regardless of what the official church position on mm. it is. Um, and so in July 29, 1974, at a church in Philadelphia, three bishops ordain 11 female priests. Because Jeanette is the oldest, and because she's sort of had this dream the longest, she's so the first one to be ordained. So there's some dude bishops that are like, this yeah. is... Yeah, they're like, this is care. dumb, and we should like, just do this. I know, but... Um, yeah. But of course, because they're not technically allowed to be ordained, and because some of the bishops were doing it a little irregularly, the church is like, no, 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 no. They call them regular, the invalid, um, and the, the other bishops are like freaking out about it which brings up the question of like what is the church then yeah if it's not these ordained men who are bishops like are you saying they're not saying valid in their powers to ordain and you know that's sort of the big debate that ends up happening like bishop to bishop yeah okay so the other bishop's like no 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 um and one (laughs) of the, the presiding bishop confronts Jeanette about it and her response which i think is just great is Sonny, I'm old enough to have changed your nappies. <laughs> Which is just, like, great on so many levels. Um, and then decides, you know, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to try to make this happen. And so she and the other women put together this sort of big argument because the next general convention is coming up in 1976. Mm. And there they get it official. Women can be priests in the Episcopal Church. And they're super excited about it. And she had been practicing for a long And at this point, she's been a priest for two years. Jeanette style. Jeanette style. Um, and so in 1974, in 1977, they retroactively sort of validate her. They're like, no, no, it's okay. Like, the 11 of you are, like, actually priests. And so she's like, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, and then she continues serving as a priest at the church in St. Paul until her death in 1981. Dang. So she gets a good... She's been there for a long time. Good 86 years out there. Both the uh, Jeanettes. Yeah. Just like living Name your it. daughter's Jeanette. It's a good it's a good talisman so far. Um and so some stats on Episcopal priests. Okay. In our stats thing. Um about half of the newly ordained or Episcopal priests each year are now women. Half? Half. Oh. 
but that still means only about a third of the priesthood is female. Um, and for them, for the big still. debate recently has been, well, sure, they can be priests, but can they be bishops? Yes. Um, Sorry. <laughs> if no one's sure, yes, they should be. Yeah. yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. so that has been the conversation. And I'm pretty sure... Not, not a valid question, um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. That the presiding bishop of the like Episcopal Conference in the U.S., mm-hmm. either now or very recently, was a woman. It's like, getting there, get but like slower it. than it needs oh to be. Um, but I really, I was really taken with Jeanette because she like has this awesome life in three acts, like scientist and balloonist, yeah. and then works for NASA, and then is like, I'm going to be a priest. I mean, I don't want a devil's advocate for them, but it is kind of like, it, it would mean a big change of how they talk about god because there is a weird intrinsic maleness to how we talk about god in Mm -hmm. those in those religions catholics are particular yeah holy father you know top dog is the dad you know it's just it's all it's super gendered super gendered and it's god so it shouldn't have a gender yeah and there's this weird at least in the the catholic theology there's this weird theology of like the church's the like female partner and so the priest needs to be male because that's the like complementariness of it so like women can't be priests because then you'd have like lesbian partnerships involved there and we can't have that so it's just like all this weird very gendered they get too tied up in like the rules they arbitrarily made once yeah it's like instead of people can have no gender now people Mm -hmm. human beings can have no gender now yeah now i understand the people i'm talking to and those religions don't understand that concept to begin with but we're in a world where people don't have gender but our deity does yes and the thing that blows my mind... And that's just not going to correlate for very much longer. Is that, like, gender, like, the genetic expression of gender that we think about isn't yeah. a binary either. No. Like, there are so many different What is versions. a woman? Like, what does it mean to be a woman? Exactly. Yeah. And, like, so genetically, there's no way you can just, like, pull out a genetic and be like, man, woman. Yeah. It that's just, like, what that is. It doesn't work like that. It's like... Uh, so, like, is it about the until... penis is the question. Like, if you have a penis, can you be a priest? And if you don't, you can't. And, and, it's then, a, and then you and are your body test. parts? Yeah. That's such a like in a in a realm of like spirituality where it's not even like about your body, it's about yourself and your soul and all of the Yeah. But yeah. no, it's about your body. Yeah. Do you see how you paint yourself into a corner there, organized religion? Skip <laughs> with the times. Yeah. Adapt or die. Exactly. But that's why I really like her, because she's just like It's nope, so hard to I'm move a giant you Yeah. Know, a giant old establishment thing. It's just yeah. hard. It's just hard. But she ends up doing it. Like, yeah. playing a really important part in doing it. Yeah. It's um, quite a task. Yeah. I So I was, like, super, super impressed with her. That she's like, yeah, yeah I'm going to do this thing. Yeah. Then I'm going to take some time off. And then I'm going to do this other really I know. Cool I'm thing. always impressed by people with multiple careers. Yeah. Like, definitely. in a range of... I just think that's, like, really uh, the goal. Like, you're getting the most out of everything. Do you know what I mean? You're really trying to experience all of your passions and stuff. So Yeah. Awesome. Definitely. I'm glad I know her. So, Jeanette Picard. Jeanette Picard. We're going to say Jean-Luc Picard is based on her. Yes, that is my belief. That is my Not, not my her belief. husband. No. Because he seemed like a crusty old cr- yeah. cranky pants. Very cranky pants. Okay. Yay. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile... 
Email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you liked the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie. Thank you for listening to Missing History. 